So um, we're going to continue on a series this morning uh, of being healthy, strong, and uh, we're going to dive in and look um, in the book of 1 Samuel here. But um, before we do that, I just want to pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Uh, Thank you that you are with us. We're hungry to receive from you, from your word, and we know that you are are always there to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us. You're the God who speaks. You don't change in that respect. And so we know, Father, you want to speak to us this morning. And Lord, our hearts are open. So Father, anoint me. I ask that I would be able to reflect what is on your heart and uh, let all our ears be open then to receive the seed that comes and that we might be changed by it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to um, read a story uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, verse 11. We're going to read a few um, verses here, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the backstory of this. I like to talk about the backstory because it helps us, when we know what the backstory is, it helps us know how to move forward. Um, so let's read this together. This is um, the occasion when the people of God came under attack. So about a month later, King Nahash of Ammon. Now, anyone with the name Nahash is just automatically a bad guy in my book. He was a bad dude, Nahash of Ammon, led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. But all of the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. They said, make a treaty with us and we will be your servants. They pleaded. All right, Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and you will be a disgrace to all of Israel. So here they had this um, choice here. It's like the, you know, this game the kids play in the playground. Like, would you rather have no legs or, or no arms? Would you rather be like hungry, sitting in a bunch of food? Or it, it was this whole crazy thing. So these people were... were greeted with this opportunity. The enemy has surrounded them. They could either be utterly destroyed or take their chances in battle, or they could lose their right eye. So we're going to keep reading here. So they said, um, give us seven days. So this is the people of Jabesh. Give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel, replied the elders of Jabesh. If no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. What the heck? When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing the field with his oxen. Interesting that the king was out there plowing a field, but that's a topic for another time. And when he returned to town, he asked, what's the matter? Why is everyone crying? So they told him about the message from Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. So we're going to find out in a little bit what happened shortly after this, but let's talk about how we got here. Um, Saul had just been anointed king. He was the guy. And it was a little bit of a troubling transition um, because God did not want to set in a king for the Israelites and for them to then be just like all the other nations. But the people of God, after 
uh, many, many centuries and generations of being led by God through priests and prophets and then more recently judges, they came to the prophet, they came to Samuel, and they basically said to him, we are done with this administration. We are done with having to relate to God through judges and, and, and prophets and priests. We want to have a king. We want to be just like all the other nations. Set us somebody over us who will tell us what to do. Make it easier for us. Why do we have to be so different? Why do we have to do things a different way? We want to be like everybody else, and we want somebody who's this mighty person who will just tell us what to do, who will make things easier for us. And so the prophet spoke to them and basically told them, this is not what you want. Why are you rejecting God? But they still came back, and they said to Samuel, no, give us a king. And so Samuel went with this to the Lord, and the Lord said, fine, I will give them what they want. And we talk a lot in this church about God being a God of choice, and he doesn't force us to do anything. And we see a picture of this, that when the people of God wanted to move away from this relationship and more into religion, away from administration, more of grace, which would be coming from a connection to God and a relationship with God and more into law, while it was never what God wanted for them, because that is what they chose, he gave them what they asked for. And it's just a really fascinating picture of, of what we can find ourselves doing here. You know, it is easier in many ways to operate under religion or law. It's just easier. Does anyone, does anyone agree with me on that? It can be easier if someone just lays it all out. This is the way it's going to be. You must not do all these things, uh, but you can do all these things. But to operate from a place of relationship and grace requires something else. It requires something else, which is something else that God wants us to have, which is that relationship and that connection. So we're not living under law. It's the difference between law and grace. God wants to give us the ability to be able to know and understand his heart and respond to it and act responsibly. So we see this at work in, in different things in society. This is why we have speed limits, right? Because it's easier if a road is given a particular speed limit so that you know what speed you should travel on that. Now, personally, I don't live according to law. I live according to grace. And I feel like the Holy Spirit has given me the ability to determine just the right speed for any given um, road that I may travel on. And I'm so grateful that I'm freed from the law of, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is the cause of death. Now, joking aside, in, in England... Up until uh, very recently, actually, probably 20 or 30 years ago, there are numerous roads in England which have what is called a national speed limit, which is the maximum speed limit that we have for any non-highway, which is 60 miles an hour. And so on these roads, some of them, which are barely wider than the span of my arms, a single track road, the actual posted speed limit there is 60 miles an hour. 
And the purpose behind this is that when they were instituting the traffic system and they were setting speed limits and all this type of thing, there was a general understanding that humanity would be responsible and would realize that you should not travel down a single lane track with blind corners and hedges 12 foot high on either side at 60 miles an hour. But you should be able to use your judgment and you should be able to, to discern what the right speed is and that you would travel that speed. Now, I guess in the wisdom of the British government, they discovered after some 50 years that actually human nature was not redeemed and would not in fact make always wise and just decisions. And so the, the speed limits were brought down. Why? Because somebody else had to set in motion the standards for people who were not able to make wise decisions for themselves. What God wants for his church and his people beyond anything else is for them to have a relationship with him and carry his heart. And so the spirit of God within us is what drives us and motivates us to make wise decisions. And so that we're empowered to actually deepen in our relationship with God, inquire of him and know him because we want to know the way forward. But when it's all laid out for us step by step, that, that motivation and drive to understand the heart is taken away and we can just get into the mode of following just by rote. And so this is the backdrop of what was happening to the Israelites at this point here when we have the invasion of Jabesh Gilead. And so let's move um, back to the story here and look at what happened with these guys. And then we're going to make some points as we move forward about how they were delivered. So if we can bring up that passage again, I'm just going to read the last couple of verses, if we can go, go to that, and then we're going to talk about what happened here. So we have the invading army which comes to the people of God and says to them, it's interesting, they singled out a small section, a city that was easy to get to. They singled out this small section and they said to these people, um, we're going to come and crush you. And then the people of God said to them, please let us make a treaty with you. And so it was interesting that the people of God asked to make a treaty, but actually the invaders was the one that gave them the treaty that they were going to actually follow, which was that if we will take out your right eye, then you, will, you may live and you will serve us. So it's really a fascinating thing. It just sounds really bizarre to us in this day and age, but it's actually highly significant what the enemy wanted to do. Because in this day and age, the success and the security of a nation was tied up almost exclusively to its ability in war and battle. That you, would only, you were only as secure and successful as your ability to wage war and to defend yourself. And so by the taking out of the right eye, the armies of the Israelites 
their archers would be completely ineffective. You can't shoot an arrow accurately when you have no depth perception. You would hold the sword with the right hand and the shield with the left, and you would rely on your right eye to be the leading eye to enable you to fight. And so what the enemy was basically saying is, I will let you exist, you can live, but you'll never be able to fight. And you will live under my terms for as long as you live, and you will be impotent, and you will be an embarrassment, and you will have no ability anymore to fight and to, to exercise any degree of authority whatsoever. The taking out of the right eye would, inf would ensure that all of that would happen. So we have an enemy, and his goal, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And in the same way today, the plan of the enemy for you and I is that he would take away our ability to fight, that he would make us impotent, and he would relegate us to be content to make an agreement with him that we are happy just to exist in a meaningless life without power if we will agree with him on his terms. So how did they prevent this from happening? How did they prevent the peoples of Jabesh Gilead from submitting to the enemy and living out their rest of their days? There was no recovery from this. It's not like they could be restored and eyes suddenly start growing back. This was a permanent thing. But God has a way out. Amen? Let's look at what happened here. So, um, we see that the word of God came to Saul. Sorry, the word of, from the battlefront came to Saul. And it says the spirit of God moved powerfully upon him. And he became very angry. You know, sometimes it's totally cool to be very angry. And sometimes it's totally not cool to be very angry, but it's really important to know when it's okay and when it's not okay. Once you've mastered that, then you're in, you're in pretty good shape. But we have this principle of what the Bible in other places calls righteous indignation. It just sounds so cool, doesn't it? It's that King James, that righteous indignation. When something within you, the Spirit of God within you, rises up, and it's more than just your rationale and your natural ability to analyze and process, but the Spirit of God rises up and says, no, this is not okay, and I will not stand for it. I've shared a story before when uh, Diana and I were driving in a car and this lady who was with us started manifesting a demon. And while I was driving, I, I felt the same thing happened. The Spirit of God rose up in me and was like, no, I will not put up with this. And we cast out the demon from this woman as I was driving at 70 miles an hour, which was the speed limit. Um, <laughs> just to back up my point. And so... So the Spirit of God came upon Saul. He went and he rallied 300,000 men and another 30,000 specialized fighting men. And they went out and they crushed the army. They went out to Jabesh Gilead. They crushed the enemy, destroyed them all. And then we are told that they were so utterly destroyed that not even two men left together. They were utterly scattered. And so I want to talk this morning and just give two 
areas for us that I believe the Lord is focusing on that enable us as a church, as a people, to overcome when the enemy is surrounding us and to be freed and live in victory in the same way that the Israelites did in this story. So when the men and women of Jabesh Gilead were under oppression and the enemy came to them, while their response was initially to try and negotiate with the enemy, they did one thing which ended up saving them. What did they do? Number one, they asked for help. And sometimes the first thing that we need to do and the one thing that is often the last thing we do is ask for help. Now, sometimes we ask for help in strange ways or we ask for help at inopportune times or sometimes our cries for help may not be clear as cries for help, but what we've got to do above everything else is when we find ourselves in a position like this is ask for help. I remember one time that I... Uh, I experienced someone asking for help, which taught me a little bit about, about the process of asking for help. I remember one time, this is in our old house a few years ago, I, uh, Diane and I had gone to bed. It was probably about 11 o'clock or so at this time. I believe it was on a weekend. And... Uh, we were about to turn the light off, and I kind of heard some rustling outside our door, a little bit of movement. Now, when you're a parent and you have kids of this age, um, I think Aiden at the time was eight or nine, you kind of get well used. You tune your ears in. It's like a dog. You can kind of you'll wake up from a nap when you hear a child moving back and forth outside. And so I, I heard this rustling noise, and... Um, our door kind of creaked open. I saw the handle there. It creaked open. We lived in a really old house with creaky doors and floors. No one could ever break in or get anywhere. Um, the whole house would be awakened as soon as they entered the stairwell. And so the door opens. Then in comes this little figure of my middle son, Aiden, probably age nine, shuffling in. Um, and immediately I knew something was wrong. You know, you've got that kind of stance. The head was down and, and the feet are shuffling. And I turned around and I said to him, Aiden, Aiden, what, what are you doing? And I began to hear some kind of whimpering. Um, and I could tell that he was upset. So I said, Aiden, darling, come here. What, what, what on earth is wrong? His face is just like this. <laughs> Dad. So Aiden. What, what on earth is wrong? Come here to me, Dad. And then the lip began to curl up in the shape of a W. And it's one of those situations where you ask kids questions, but they, they are completely incapacitated. They can't actually string sentences together, words together, and get a sentence. There's no answer. So as a parent, it's like fishing. You have to go one word at a time. So I got to Dad at this point. So I'm, Aiden, come, come here. What on earth is wrong? And then... The face began to break up. Dad? Yes, yes, what is it? Dad? Aiden, my heart at this point, I'm just really troubled, I, and I just feel devastated. I'm trying to think what's happening. Is somebody entered into the house, and I know that that can't possibly happen. Is there something going on with his older brother? He's so distraught in his face. 
and then the tears began to come down, and then we have another few words. Just when? When? And I'm like, yes, when? When? There's one word. When? When can I? Yes, right, probably right away. Keep coming. And so I'm there fishing. We're trying to get these words out. I've got when, when can I? So I'm trying to think, when can I do what? When, when can? And then there's like the break. We had the hysterics here that come along. So then we have to go back. We've got to start again or, or, or when here. We can't carry on. If there's been more than a five-second lag, it goes back to the beginning. So I said, Aiden, come on. Meanwhile, he's getting closer and closer to the bed. So I'm thinking that his proximity to me will hopefully get more information out of him. So he gets closer, closer, and then we get a little bit more. This sad when, when can you? I've got when can you? This is good. When when can I what? Dad, when can you move the router and get a better Wi-Fi signal? <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? What are you talking about? It's 11 o'clock. What are you doing playing Call of Duty at midnight? I'll just call Comcast right now and have them come out here. The bandwidth is inadequate. My son needs more bandwidth. I, I'm, I'm just mystified at this. What is going on? And so, of course, he came over, and I just grabbed him, and I hugged him tight. I know, darling, the router's been just put in such an inopportune place. It can barely get the signal through the wall. It's just an outrage. I can't believe I've let you down so much as a father. Will you please forgive me for this? So anyway, anyway, all joking aside, uh, one thing I learned at that time is that when you're, when you're under great distress, which for a child means once you reach the point when it is at least two hours past your normal bedtime, when you are at that point, you begin to lose all sense of objectivity. You begin to completely get absorbed with this one thing that's in front of you, and then the degree of importance that you put on this one thing gets blown completely out of proportion. But the one great thing which I loved about what happened there, that when my son was in what to him was just immense distress, the one thing he actually did right in that situation is although he may not have communicated in the most expedient way possible, it may not have been very clear, it certainly wasn't at the right time. But what he did do is he recognized who the person he needed to go to was where he could get help, and he actually went there and he asked for help. And I want to let, I want to let you know that when you feel at a place where there are things going on that you feel you don't understand or don't have control over, and you recognize that there's somebody else who can probably add into your situation and bring you help, that it doesn't matter really how you ask. It probably doesn't matter when you ask. It's always better to go and ask for help. And much better to ask for too much help than too little help. 
much better to ask help for help at the wrong time than the perfect time. Because unless we can rely on our brothers and sisters to ask for help, then we're never going to get help. Amen? Number one, we've got to be ready to ask for help. I was uh, really struck when I first came to this country by the guy that was overseeing the um, uh, Bible training program that I was on. Um, there were a number of times when he talked to me about these things, and he said to me at different times, listen, hey, I want to open up my life to you. And I'm like, heck, who am I? He said, I want to open up my life to you because I realize that there may be things which are blind spots for me. And I just want to let you know that if there are things that you see as you spend time with me, you see in my life and my family, I want you to talk to me about them and help me if you can. And there's something powerful about that having type of, that type of relationship with other people, not just one person, where our lives are open, our lives are shared, and we're prepared to ask for help and input from other people. So number one, we ask for help. So in order to get free and overcome this attack, the people of JB, uh, Jabesh Gilead got together, and they overcame because the people of God knew to, number two, fight one another's battles. This is an interesting thing. You've got this whole city besieged by the enemy. And then you, you have one person, one person initially, who, filled by the Spirit of God, rises up within him and says, we need to do something about this, and here's what we're going to do. He then went around and he rallied hundreds of thousands of people. But the interesting thing is that for each of these people, you've got these guys in fields who are nobodies, who if they had been asked, hey, can you come and, 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 and rout this army with me, that in of themselves, they did not have the power to do it. But when the... When the word came from Saul, and they went around, and they gathered up these people one by one, they came together, the Bible says, as one man. And we have that picture of singular people who in of themselves didn't have the capacity to see the city freed. When they came together as one man, they utterly destroyed the enemy. Because you are the key to someone else's victory. In times in my life, I have not been able to find victory by myself. It is not until one or two or groups of other people come to me because they have what it takes by God to help me come into victory. And we've got to understand that we have a responsibility to come together and to see people in our family delivered and set free. And that takes all different types of shapes and, and forms. But one thing that is important to us in this church is that we come together as a family and we fight for one another. There have been times when I've seen people praying for one another, coming together to just war in the heavenlies to see people come through breakthrough, whether it's in um, just uh, health in the soul where, where, whether it's physical health in the body, whether it's financial help, whether it's practical help, 
that we are the key to each other's victory. And so when there was this this rallying cry from Saul, and then the people gathered together, and they said, yes, we will go to our brothers, we will go and set them free, and we will get rid of the enemy. The Spirit of God empowered them, and they set their brothers free. And so for you and I, as we stand today, as we look around, we got to understand that we are the key to our brother and sister's victory. And so that comes with living in community, that comes with having connected lives, and with, with opening our hearts so that we can ask for help and people can see what it is that we need in order to get set free. Because the Lord does not want any one of us making an agreement to live just a life of existence because the enemy just wants to take away our ability to fight. And when we come together, we can see every man, woman, child living in freedom and living in victory just as Saul did when the army went into Jabesh Gilead. Amen? So if you will stand with me, I just want to pray for uh, us and for, for people in a couple of specific situations at this point. And uh, I believe the Holy Spirit is just going to highlight some things and He's going to minister to us this morning. So let's just do that. Father, I thank You that You are the Lord that always, always is there to help. And Father, I thank You that, that You have set, set Yourself before us that we can have a relationship with you, that we can know you. And Father, I just ask by your Holy Spirit right now that you would come and that you would um, provoke hearts, that if there are those this morning who feel like they have made a decision to accept something that the enemy has said to them, to, to live in compromise, to just choose to live an existence without actually finding victory in an area. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict them at this point and give them courage, Father. Courage to ask for help. That may mean just choosing to share with somebody what's going on. Something real simple, but I ask for courage. Holy Spirit, let us see what it is that we need to do to respond to get freedom. And Lord, for the others of us here this morning that are the answer to our brothers and sisters, that are the key to victory as we are joined together. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just give us wisdom and instruct us this morning in, in how we respond. Give us insight and wisdom to see what's happening where there is a city besieged. Give us wisdom to know how to respond to difficult situations that are uh, uh, within our church family, even today, where the enemy has come in and he's, he's wanting to bring destruction. Give us wisdom in how to respond. But above all else, Father, I ask that you would, you would cause us to draw together as one man and recognize the key to living in freedom is when we are connected and we are together as one man. So Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would just give us wisdom. Show us the situations that maybe we've come across that, that we need to respond to differently. 
Show us who to, who to involve with, who to, who to partner with, to help overcome challenges and problems that are in our midst this morning, Father. I thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.